Good morning. morning. How are we? Doing all right? It's good to see you. We're in Galatians this morning. Um, Just bear with that. They'll get it dialed in. We're in Galatians this morning, opening up God's Word uh, for the the very first time in this book, hearing what the Apostle Paul has to say to a church in trouble. Uh, I would love for you to open your Bibles. There's black Bibles around the room that we have given uh, to you, that we have provided for you. Uh, I forget the page number, 936 or 913 or something to that effect. It's on the main slides. Somebody call it out if you see it. Galatians 913 and the black Bibles in the room around you. Normally I have that dialed in. I don't this morning. I want to read God's word. I want to pray again. We cannot pray too much. And then we will dive right in. This is God's word, Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Father, this morning as your word is opened before us, impress upon us to increasingly become and to continue as people of the book. People who come to the scriptures to see and to know your character, to see and to know your work in the world over the course of human history, to see and to know our place in this world what we were created for, how we were created, who we were created by, and to know how to respond to your work in this world that you have created. Make us a reverent people that are filled with joy, where our eyes express it, our voices express it, our embraces express it, our gentleness with one another expresses it, our firmness in holding fast to the gospel expresses it. We love you and we thank you for first loving us. In Jesus' name, God's people said, amen. Galatians has been described as dynamite, an explosion of joy and an explosion of freedom. It's been described by a theologian named R.C. Sproul as extremely troubling in some respects. And he would go on to warn those during his teaching series that there will be turbulence ahead. So as we get into Galatians, as we open up this letter to the church, the churches of Galatia, buckle up. Martin Luther, he loved Galatians because, in part, it was a concise Romans Romans is a treatise on what the gospel is in your New Testament. And Galatians was a summary that made similar points as Romans, but in shorter order. So if Romans is a, is a treatise on what the gospel is, a portion of Galatians is a summary of what the gospel is not. When I, uh, when, when I was, I think, 19, I started working at Fred Meyer when they opened up here in Coeur d'Alene. And I worked in the electronics department, and, and I, had to, uh, I, had, I was a clerk. So uh, they had to teach me how to spot counterfeit money. Do you know how they teach you how to spot counterfeit bills? 
They don't teach you how to spot counterfeit bills by looking at all of the different counterfeits. The way that they would teach us to spot counterfeit bills was by becoming so familiar with the real thing that then when something was off by sight, by, te- by texture, or, or by sound even, the bills in your hands, we would know that this isn't the real thing. And they also gave us the little magic, you know, the little magic marker that we could swipe across the bill. You've seen people do that. But the way that we learn to spot fakes is by becoming so familiar with what is real and what is verifiable and what is able to be stood on that it's just not a problem for us. A fake gospel, fake good news, it isn't good news. And it does not, and it cannot save. That's what matters to Paul as he writes to the churches of Galatia here, and it's what should matter intensely to us as his people to know the gospel, to know what it is. What is this thing that we call good news constantly? Just by way of introduction to familiarize yourselves with Galatians, um, it was likely the Apostle Paul's very first letter written at all that we have on record. And it was written, most scholars, there is some debate around it, but that's died down as of recent. Most scholars believe that that Galatians was written sometime in 48 or 49 AD. Now to familiarize yourselves with where that falls in the line of, of Jesus Christ, he was crucified somewhere around 33 AD. So Galatians is written to these churches that Paul has planted less than around 15 years after the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So just to kind of put that in our own terms, it's 2019 now, 2004. Like we're still probably in contact with many of the people who we knew in 2004. It's fresh. The ascent, the the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is fresh. The disciples, many of them are still alive. They're around, they're planting churches. They are active in the world around them. Scholars disagree somewhat on exactly who these Galatians were. It could have been addressed to the people of a region of Galatia or a people of Galatian ethnicity. So the Galatians are descendants of the Celts, uh, the ancient Gauls. You can Google that later. I'm not going to get into all of it. But, but I think the consensus is moving more to agree on the fact that, the, that this letter was written to a variety of churches in the Roman province of Galatia. Now to orient yourselves on a map, that is in modern day Turkey. The Roman province of Galatia is in modern, modern day Turkey, in the southern portion of Turkey. Now, Another thing to notice really quickly in Galatians, in, in, at the very end of verse 2, who does he address this letter to? Look in your Bibles. The churches of Galatia, which means that he's writing to who? He's writing to Christians. He's not writing to non-Christians. He's giving a treatise on the gospel. He's helping the Christians of the churches of Galatia know verifiably what the good news of Jesus Christ is. The gospel is given to Christians. The gospel is given to non-Christians. The gospel is not just the way in, you'll hear me say, but the gospel is also the way onward. It's how and where we derive our power for life. We live out the implications of the gospel. Does somebody have one of those bulletins in a seat back in front of you? Let me grab one real quick. Somebody hand me one. I just want to orient you to this. This On the back, there's a little blurb here from Timothy Keller. This is what he says. 
During our time in Galatians, we're going to see Paul showing that the young, these young Christians in Galatia, that their spiritual problem, it's not only caused by failing to live in obedience to God, but it's also by relying on obedience to God. We're going to see Paul telling them all they need, all they could ever need, is the gospel of God's unmerited favor to them through Christ's life, death, and resurrection. We're going to hear Paul solving their issues, not through telling them to, quote, be better Christians, but by calling them to live out these implications of the gospel. So we're going to watch Paul challenge them and us with this simple truth that the gospel is not just the ABC of Christianity, but the A to Z of Christianity, that Christians need the gospel as much as non-Christians. The good news of Jesus Christ, it becomes the interpretive lens by, by which we interpret all of Scripture. We interpret our Old Testaments through the life of Jesus Christ, who he is, because they point to Jesus the Messiah. And we read our New Testament as the affirmation of Jesus as Nazareth being the man who is God. In Acts 13 and 14, and also Acts 16 and 18, this is the sixth book, I think, of your New Testament. Acts means the acts of the apostles, the actions of the apostles. It tells the story of the early church, if you're unfamiliar, with the scriptures. And so this physician named Luke wrote it as an account of the early church. And in Acts chapters 13 and 14, 16, 6, 18, 23, Luke will account for some of Paul's travels through Galatia in and around Galatia. He comes through, he plants churches, he comes back, he encourages them, he writes letters to them, which is what we're reading this morning, also to protect them from false teaching, to encourage them, etc. So what Paul did was plant churches, and his practice was actually to start by planting the good news of Jesus Christ. That is where the Apostle Paul started. He would start with an individual by planting, seeing to the planting of good news in the human heart. As a person took hold of the historical data around Jesus Christ, the fact that he is God, that he lived a perfect life, he died, he was buried, and he rose again on the third day. As people believe this, and this gospel is planted in their hearts, then what Paul would do is he would gather united communities of people, others who also believe this, together around this gospel, and then he would commission them to hold fast to this gospel that they had been taught, to never depart from it, but also to teach others to gather around it and to hold fast to it as well. That's just how he did it. And that's what we're going to do by God's grace for the next hundred years at All of Life Church, should God give us that long before he comes back. Maybe even a thousand years. This is the pocket that we're going to run our plays from continually, seeing that the gospel is planted deep in our hearts, that we live out of its implications, that we continue to gather people around the good news of Jesus Christ, uniting one another around the good news of Jesus Christ, and we commission one another to hold fast to this gospel and to refuse to depart from it. Still part of the introduction to Galatians. It's about 149 verses, six chapters. If you read Galatians and you read it slowly, moderately, it will probably take you somewhere around 20 to 25 minutes to read through Galatians. You can do this. You can listen to it. I would encourage you to do both. 
I would encourage you. There's, it gets a little <clears throat> hard to understand in chapters 3 and 4. Some of chapter 5 gets a bit confusing as Paul begins to kind of unpack how the law and the gospel begin to work together and how <clears throat> the gospel, sorry, I have something. The gospel, uh, it, it, um, it, it interprets the law. It puts to death the, more, the, the ceremonial law of Moses for Christians, we live by the Spirit, not by the law. Paul will emphasize this over and over and over again in Galatians. So if you get hung up in those chapters, I want to encourage you to go to a paraphrase translation like the message. It's a good place to start. We read the message to our kids. It was written by Eugene Peterson to help his people understand the Bible because they weren't understanding the scriptures in word-for-word translations. So go back to something like that where you don't understand, where passages perplex you, and then work your way into the translations that we are using, which are more word-for-word translations like the English Standard Version or the Christian Standard Bible, I want to encourage you to use the message or use the New Living Translation. Use the NIV. And and as you begin to grasp the arguments and the concepts, then let those drive you to more word-to-word translations. And here's just one last note of encouragement for you guys and gals. Get a good study Bible. Get a good study Bible. The ESV study Bible is wonderful. The CSB Christian Standard Bible study Bible is wonderful. Grab one of those and read the notes. And anytime you're hung up, man, get into the notes of these commentators who often have spent the, the whole of their educational focus on these books. They know it better than anybody. So here we're going to dig right into Galatians chapter 1. Paul's authority and his call as an apostle... Come through God alone. Verse 1. Paul's authority and his call as an apostle come through God alone. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul's authority as an apostle, a capital A apostle, a sent one of God, came not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. Now, Paul is the very first word in Galatians. We have widespread understanding, I think, and consensus that Paul wrote this letter. It's got his marks all over it. But the next thing that he says is he, he, he issues a title for himself. He says, Paul, an apostle. Now, you might hear, you might see people on Christian TV these days calling themselves an apostle, or you might go into Christian bookstores and see that a book has been written by somebody that titles themselves apostle. Run. Run. Apostle is a, 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 there is apostolic gifting in the world that we live in. People who typically are missionaries or starters who have, could you say, an entrepreneurial bent might have an apostolic gifting according to Ephesians chapter 4. But there are not apostles today. Apostleship was conferred to the Apostle Paul and to the 12 disciples, also called apostles. But disciple and apostle is a distinguished term and title for them. It was conferred, this authority was conferred to them by Christ alone. There are not apostles today like there were then. Now, why in the world does Paul start with his title? Is he insecure? What's going on here? What does this mean? Why does he say it from the start? Paul's authority, the reason that he's writing to this Galatian church is because his authority is being threatened by a Jewish sect of Christians who have now infiltrated these series of churches as teachers, and the content of these false teachers' teaching essentially says this, Jesus plus keeping the law 
equals your salvation. Yes, they would agree, Jesus is the Messiah, and yes, the entire, the, the entire law of Moses is still binding on you. This is false teaching. This is anti-gospel. Jared, Gerald Bray says this, the false apostles were preaching the gospel plus the law. They were corrupting Christ's teaching by adding something to it that was unnecessary. To be a Christian is to put one's trust in the saving work of Jesus Christ. To add anything else to that is to doubt the power of God by implying that it is not enough. Here's an equation. Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Jesus plus your works is not the gospel. Not at all. These teachers further were accusing Paul of being a rogue church planter. They were accusing him of, him of being untethered to the other apostles, the 12 disciples. Now, disciple is a, is a term that means learner. We are all disciples. Those of us who call Jesus Lord, we would be disciples of Jesus. We are learners from Jesus. But an apostle is a sent one. And the 12 disciples that Jesus called and conferred his authority upon were also called apostles. Apostle and disciple are not interchangeable. Terms. They have two distinct meanings. Those 12, they lived with Jesus. They witnessed both his baptism and his resurrection. Jesus himself called them and gave them these titles. You'll remember that Judas sold Jesus out, and there were only 11 disciples left. And these disciples got together and they prayed in the early chapters of Acts. And they said, Somebody must fulfill this missing office, this 12th apostle. So let us ask, let us find out who was with Jesus from the moment of his baptism all the way through his resurrection. And then they prayed to the Lord and they did something called casting lots. And the lot fell to a man named Matthias who took Judas's office, 12 apostles again. Now, Paul didn't witness any of that. <clears throat> Paul was a young Pharisee who hated Christians. So how in the world did Paul become an apostle? Verse 1, Paul received salvation. And apostolic authority from what? From direct revelation with Jesus. The Apostle Paul's story, you can find it in Acts. Go, go left in your Bibles, Acts chapter 9. I just want to read the story of Paul's conversion here and unpack it a, a slight bit as we go. <clears throat> in, uh, go, to, go to Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19. Acts chapter 9, verses 1 through 19 page 863 on the Black Bibles. I want to encourage you to, to, to interact with a, with a Bible. If you don't have one, if you do not own a Bible, the Black Bible that you are now holding belongs to you. You do now. We'd love for you to take it home. It's our gift to you. Page 863 in those. Now, <clears throat> you'll see it say, but Saul, well, we live in a multi, they, they're living in a multicultural society, and oftentimes you'll see in the New Testament that the same person goes by different names. You'll see that actually in the letter to the Galatians where Paul will, will refer to Peter as a man named Cephas. Think like Jorge and George in our culture, right? Like we, we have Spanish names, we have English names. They're, these names are interchangeable. So the Saul that you're reading of here is the Apostle Paul who wrote the letter to the Galatians. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest, 
the Pharisees and asked him for letters. This is permission, a commission to the synagogues, these Jewish synagogues that were in Damascus, Syria, so that if he found any belonging to the, notice that capital word, way there. This was the title of the early Christians. They were called the way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And before anybody was ever called Christian, they were, they were called those who belonged to the way. So he asked for this permission from these high priests in Jerusalem for letters that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound. That is to say, cuffed, shackled as prisoners to Jerusalem. Now, as Paul went on his way, he approached Damascus and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him and falling to the ground, he heard a voice. So he's in the dust. He's hearing a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you? Period. Question mark. Is that what he said? No. He says, who are you, Lord? He's humbled into the dust this moment. He notices and he, and he knows at a deep level that he is outmatched, outdone in this moment. And so he submits to this one who is speaking to him, but whom he cannot see. Who are you, Lord? And this voice, he, a person, said to him, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Wait a second. Paul wasn't persecuting Jesus. Paul was persecuting Christians, was he not? No. He was persecuting Jesus because Christians have union with Christ. We are one with Christ. He is our Lord. We are his people. So to persecute Christians is to persecute the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then this voice, this person, Jesus Christ would say to him in verse 6, but rise, get up, enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do, which means I will continue to speak to you. I will continue to instruct you. I will continue to guide you. Hang on, more coming. Saul rose from the ground, verse 8, and although his eyes were opened, he couldn't see, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand, and they brought him into Damascus. And for three days, he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. What does that mean? It means he was rethinking his life on a profound level for three days. Because something had occurred that he could not explain, and he was troubled by it. He's looking back at his past. He's looking back at what he's done, why he's even going to Damascus in the first place. And he is humbled. This is a massive time out in the life of Saul, Paul. Now, there was a disciple who was at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord Jesus said to him in a vision, Ananias. He said, here I am, Lord. And the Lord Jesus said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight. And, and, to, and at the house of Judas, not Judas Iscariot, but another man named Judas, look for a man from Tarsus named Saul, Paul. For behold, he is praying. What else do you do in a moment like that where this has happened to you on the road? And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias. Essentially, he's seen you in a vision. Come and lay your hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But look at Ananias' answer. Lord Jesus, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints who are in Jerusalem. And here, now in Damascus, he has authority. We're fearful. We know he's coming. We have heard he is coming. Here he has authority from the chief priest to bind, to, 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 to cuff, to shackle all who call on your name. But the Lord Jesus said to him, go, take courage. 
for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles, that is non-Jews, and kings, those who are noble and in positions of power, and also the children of Israel, those who are Jews. For I will show him, Jesus still speaking here, I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house. He found Paul and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, he's calling him a brother now. Not enemy, Saul. Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you might regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately something like scales, blurry contact lenses, fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and Paul was baptized. Saul was baptized into the name of the Father, into the name of the Son, into the name of the Holy Spirit, a Christian belonging to the way. And taking food, he regained his strength. Still rethinking his life. Still looking at the scriptures from the Old Testament that he knows by heart. But now trying to understand how Jesus is in them and embedded in them. Back to Galatians 1.1. So as Paul announces his title, Paul an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. He is explaining and he is defining the source of his authority as an apostle in the first sentence. To those that would assert that Paul was a counterfeit, he would answer, I was commissioned not from man nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and through God the Father. And my commission came through God who raised Jesus from the dead. The overflow of Paul's heart right here just gushes out of his mouth. One verse in and he's already talking about the resurrection. One verse in, in this letter, he's already bringing up the resurrection, which carries within it these themes of victory and these themes of strength and authority and hope and joy and the presence of God and glory. And all of this is coming through Jesus, who was raised from the dead, to bring us peace and to bring us promise of resurrection and union with God. Paul has written his resume, not with himself at the center here, but he has written his resume with Jesus, his Lord, at the center. Paul has written his story, his resume, with Jesus as the hero. Is that how you tell your story of redemption? Is that how, next time somebody asks you to tell them about yourself, What would it look like for you to reframe your story where Jesus is the hero of your story? You're going to get to him no matter what in your story. He is the one who has rescued you. He is the one who has given you hope. He is the one who has opened your eyes. He is the one who has helped you to forgive. He is the one who is at the center. Is the recognition that Jesus Christ is Lord, is that the life-altering factor? Of your life, not your accomplishments, not your obedience, not your awesomeness. How has Jesus Christ stepped in for you and provided unearned acceptance and unearned reconciliation? Is the peace of God ruling your heart? Verse 2. And all he's writing to these churches, he's 
He's telling them where his apostleship comes from, and he writes with the backing of all the brothers. You'll notice that little footnote next to brothers there with a one. You go down to the bottom of the page. This is the Greek word for brothers and sisters, referring to siblings and a family. I love the way that the Christian Standard Bible translates all of the times they encounter this word. It just straight up in our English version says brothers and sisters, including you women. I'm writing with all of the brothers and sisters who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Paul writes not just as one man alone, but he writes with the backing of all of the brothers and sisters who are with me. These false teachers don't just have one opponent in Paul, but they have a coalition of brothers and sisters who firmly hold to the God-given good news of salvation by faith alone through the finished work of Christ alone. And the good news is this, that God's gospel is full of, full of grace and peace for the unworthy. God's gospel is filled to the brim and overflowing with grace and with peace for the unworthy. This is radical. I know it's just like glancing off our heads, like, yeah, 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 I've heard that before. How many times have you looked at the words grace and peace and gone, yeah, 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 I've heard that before. I've read that before. No, no, no. This is a radical thing to say here. We have to stop for a moment. We have to stop and consider something. We are wired. You and I are wired since the fall, since we rejected God, since our first parents in the garden rejected God, and since we followed in their footsteps to earn, earn, earn our way back into the favor of God. We are hardwired for that. But the good news of Jesus Christ preaches an entirely, totally different message. Receive, receive, receive. You can do nothing to earn this from me. I will confer it upon you by my grace and by my goodness. Period. But, 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 but. No, no, no. Receive, receive, receive. The first move daily of our Christian spirituality is to rest open-handed in the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's it. He'll speak. He'll tell us to do things. But it's not so that he will love us. It's because he does. The same gospel that we proclaim will be the final word at the close of this age. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. The very end of your Bible The last chapter in your Bible, like the last five verses in your Bible. The Holy Spirit and the bride. That's euphemism for the church. The Spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears that invitation also extend it and say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires to take the water of life without price. It cannot be earned. The first and daily response of our Christian spirituality is to love Jesus by resting in his finished work. Paul says, grace to you and peace 
from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then in 6.18 of Galatians, chapter 6, verse 18, the very, very end, I think it's the last, I think it's the very last verse of Galatians. He says, grace be with your spirit, brothers, amen. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, but in Paul's letters, it's profound. He, he, with some variation, but usually very tight to this, he'll open his letters with grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll shut down, he'll, he'll close and exit his letters, conclude his letters by saying, grace now be with you. What does that mean? It means that Paul knows as an apostle that God is speaking through him encouragement to the churches, doctrine to the churches to hold fast to. And so as they are writing it, the grace and peace are coming to them as they're processing this language, as we're processing the Word of God. And as we have absorbed it and taken it in and are considering it, grace is now with us. He says, grace be with you. At the opening, grace is coming, grace to you. At the end, grace rests with you. The the grace, uh, the unmerited favor of God revealing himself to you is now here. It sits on you and it's in your possession. Go and look through all of, the, all of Paul's letters. It's wonderful. I'm going to bust out this big book right here. Speaking of, um, on the back table, I should have announced this at the beginning. I meant to, actually. Um, there's this little pamphlet, notebook. It, it says Galatians on it. This is a free gift to every single person in the room who wants it. What it has is the the words of Galatians on it, and then it's got a blank page on the side that you can then journal your thoughts and impressions on. You can circle. I I love to write in my Bible, but I don't totally write everything I'm thinking about in my Bible. So this is a great way to just make connections between words and themes, circle stuff, draw connections in the text itself, write your thoughts on the sides. I want everybody to grab one of these. It's a gift from us to you. Martin Luther, in 1535, wrote a commentary on Paul's letter to the Galatian church. And I just want to read an excerpt uh, to you here around grace and peace. I want you to tune in. I'm reading, yes, but this, like, man, this hits so, so hard, and it is so good. The apostles' greeting, Luther says, is new and unknown to the world. Before the gospel was preached, this greeting had never been heard. These two words, grace and peace, encompass all that belongs to Christianity. Grace loosens the bonds of sin and peace soothes the conscience. The two demons that torment us are sin and the conscience. He's using hyperbole here. Our sin and our consciences torment us. But Christ, Luther says, has overcome these two monsters and has crushed them underfoot in this world as well as the next. The world is unaware of this. That is why it cannot teach with any certainty that sin and death have been defeated and the conscience pacified. Christians are the only ones who have this teaching and have experience in using this weapon in defeating sin, despair, and eternal death. This doctrine does not come from the use of free will, neither is it an invention of reason or human wisdom, but it has been given from above. Further, these two words, grace and peace, envelop the total sum of Christianity. Grace grants the forgiveness of sins. Peace provides for a quiet and joyful conscience. Nonetheless, the conscience can never be at peace unless it first knows that sin has been forgiven. But sin is not forgiven by fulfilling the law since no one is able to satisfy the law 
You can't keep too many rules. Rather, the law denounces sin, declares the wrath of God, accuses and harasses the conscience, and throws it over the cliff into despair. That's how Luther writes. Sin is, remained even, sin is removed even, even less through works and the ingenious devices of men, such as wicked rituals, strange religions, vows, pilgrimages, and such. In brief, there is no work at all that can remove sin. On the contrary, works increase sin, meaning if we are relying upon the things that we are doing to satisfy God and to soothe our consciences and to bring us healing, that actually is held against us. We are increasing our sin. Luther continues, but the arrogant legalists, as they struggle and sweat to get rid of sin, they only make it worse. There is only one way to get rid of sin, and it is by grace alone. There is simply no other way. Isn't that good? The forgiveness of our sin, grace, is the forgiveness of our trespasses, of our, of our falling short. And the peace that Luther is speaking of here is the soothing of our conscience. And so often we put our works in the place of being the thing that soothes our conscience. If I just do this, then I know I'm right with God. No, no, no. Jesus Christ made you right with God. You didn't make you right with God. His work made you right with him. Verse 4. Jesus gave himself for our sins. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. What is the gospel? The grace of God, forgiving our sin and peace from God, soothing our troubled consciences. They come from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins. Notice a few things that Paul is saying here. He's saying that Jesus gave himself. What this means is that it's voluntary. The Father planned salvation. Look at the end of verse 4. This is the will of the Father, and Jesus accomplished it. The reality of our salvation has its origins, not in men nor through man, but through God. Jesus is not simply a teacher, you guys. He is a rescuer. He is not simply a teacher. He is a rescuer. That's what the word deliver points to in the middle of verse 4. Who gave himself to deliver us. You can translate that just as easily to rescue us. The world's religions have teachers as their founders. Christianity has a rescuer as its founder and also a teacher. We need rescue before we can ever accept teaching. We need to be rescued before we can ever accept teaching. Think about it. Timothy Keller says it like this. If you're drowning, you don't need somebody to throw you a manual on how to swim. You need somebody to throw you a rope. And then, after the rescue, we can talk about learning how to swim so that it doesn't happen again. You don't coach them in the water. You get in the water. You throw them something in the water, and you get them out of the water. You rescue them. Jesus Christ is first our rescuer. He gave himself as rescuer for our sins. I'm going to quote Timothy Keller here again. This guy is so clear. He, Jesus, made a sacrifice which was substitutionary in nature. 
The word for, he gave himself for our sins, it means on behalf of. He gave himself on behalf of our sins or in place of our sins. And substitution is why the gospel is so revolutionary because Christ's death was not just a general sacrifice, but it was a substitutionary sacrifice. He did not merely buy us a second chance, giving us another opportunity to get our lives right and to stay with God. To stay right with God, rather. He did all that we needed to do, but we cannot do. If Jesus' death really paid for our sins on, behalf, on our behalf, we can never fall back into condemnation. You hear that, Christian? If Jesus really did, through his death, pay for our sins, you can never fall back into condemnation. Why? Because then God would be getting two payments for the same sin, which is unjust. Either Jesus paid for them, or he didn't. Jesus did all we should have done in our place so that when he becomes our Savior, we are absolutely free from condemnation. Absolutely free. Free. We are past tense, saved, secure. We sing a hymn before the throne of God above. When Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and I see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because a sinless Savior died, my sinful soul, your sinful soul, is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. You to look on him and pardon me. And his gift of grace sets us apart, delivers us, rescues us from this present evil age. When you and I discover the wonder of the gospel, that we are justified by faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ and not by works of the law, it sets our souls free. We can then stand firm in our Christ-bought, sin-forgiven, conscious-soothing freedom, no longer willing to submit to the notion that our performance for God grants us acceptance from him. You do not perform your way into his acceptance. You cannot. Luther said the world does not understand this good news, so it rejects it. It thinks it's foolish. It thinks it's silly. It's hypocrisy. The world lives in this present evil age that preaches. But we've got to do something. We've got to do something for this. Do we not? Remember what I said earlier. The first and daily Christian response to our salvation is to receive it and to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And this is distinctly a different way of living than the present evil age which strives and overcompensates and accuses and blames and works its fingers down to the bone to cover our guilt and give peace to our conscience. Further in verse 4, The wonders and the benefits of this good news, they come by the will of God. This is according to Jesus is resurrected from the dead, gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God, not just God, but our Father. 
who loves us. The gospel came at great cost to Jesus in order that it might come freely to us. We are saved by works. The works of Jesus Christ. Period. His work on our behalf. Whenever and wherever you are tempted to doubt the kind heart of your Father, cling to the words that he has spoken to, in, to us in his word that Jesus gave himself according to the will of our God and Father. Notice the plural here. It's all over the page in Galatians 1. Grace to you, plural. And peace from God, our Father, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever would believe in him should receive eternal life and not perish. The Apostle John would write later to the church, and he would say, Not that we have loved God, but He has loved us, and He sent His Son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. The wonders and benefits of the gospel come by the will of our Father. They are entirely united in accomplishing redemption. This is the plan of God from before the foundation of the world. And the gospel that transforms the hearts of mankind makes God's glory visible forever and ever. Amen, Paul says. To whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. How long will the glory of God resound? In the moment, in times past. No, forever and ever. What forever and ever means is forever and then some. little cherry on top. Some of us often think and we reminisce of the glory of times past. Do we not? I remember when it didn't take me two minutes to get up off the living room floor. Remember, like Uncle Rico, I could just throw this football over that mountain. Remember when your group of friends were still together? The good old days. For those who have experienced the grace of God that forgives sin and brings peace to the conscience, I imagine God glorifying, gospel reminiscing will go something like this, starting now and never ending. Hey, remember when the gospel changed so-and-so's heart? Do you remember when it first came to us and began to shift our heart? Do you remember when it shifted that motive? Do you remember when the gospel came to us, we received it, it so compelled us to love people like God has already laid his love on us that it fed that mouth, it took care of that need, it covered that cost. Do you remember that? You remember when we were in that impossible situation and we prayed and then God moved for us and everything shifted? You remember when we were counted worthy to suffer for the name? Do you remember when the gospel first came to us and we first tasted rest for our souls? I wonder if that's how the gospel will continue to resound throughout eternity. Hey, you remember when? Hey, check this out. Hey, I forgot about that, but check this out. Look at, the, look at what he has done for us. Look at how kind he has been to us. We earned none of it. All given out of the overflow of his goodness. <clears throat> and yet, we still want something to do with this good news. So let's do something with it. From the gratitude that it produces within us, here is our application. 
Let's rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. The moment your conscience starts to trouble you, the moment you start to hear voices of condemnation, and the moment that you hear voices of conviction where the Holy Spirit is revealing something in your and my heart that he is wanting us to deal with, let's start by resting in the finished work of Jesus Christ. He looked on him and pardoned me. Allow your understanding of the gospel to come to your striving obedience as dynamite, bringing an explosion of joy and freedom and gratitude to the one who gave himself for your sins to rescue you and I from this present evil age. Father, as we move into what the gospel means, its implications on us, as we wrestle with questions of, well, where does obedience come in? Help us to ground, or help us to put that thought away and return to rest in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And may that be the starting point of our conversations daily with you, of our conversations daily with ourselves, because we speak to ourselves all the time, where words of condemnation flow at us freely, shame and guilt and questioning the love of God, may we rest in the finished, unearned, definite, sufficient work of Jesus Christ. Help us to be a gospel people, overflowing with assurance that we are yours and you are ours. In Jesus' name, amen.